Welcome to Going Antiviral, the podcast for the IAS USA, a professional continuing medical education organization focused on HIV and other viral diseases. I'm Dr. Michael Sag, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and volunteer member of the IAS USA Board of Directors. Welcome to the Going Antiviral podcast. Today, January 8th, 2024, we are speaking to epidemiologist Dr. Caitlin Gentilina. Dr. Gentilina co-founded the Health Trust Initiative and a senior scientific advisor to several government and non-governmental agencies, including the White House, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and Resolve to Save Lives. In addition, Dr. Gentilina is the publisher of Your Local Epidemiologist, a public health newsletter that translates ever-evolving science to the public, reaching over 300 million views. Dr. Gentilina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Let's start by just talking about your background in epidemiology. How did you get started in all this? In epidemiology as a whole, well, I actually always wanted to be a physician. I kind of stumbled into this field. I, I took a gap year to get my master's in public health after getting my undergrad in physiology and geography and fell in love with it. After my master's, wanted a deeper dive, got my PhD, and never really looked back. I think one of the really cool things about epidemiology and public health is that we can treat millions of people at a time instead of treating one person at a time, like in a, a physician's office. So it's it's been a wild ride. <laughs> yeah, well, I've often referred to epidemiology and public health in particular is that the people who do epi and give advice to the public. It's just like a physician to a patient, except the patient happens to be a population of people. That's right. And we're going to come back to that as we get deeper into this. So that's a great beginning here. So let's talk about your engagement in COVID, uh, COVID-19. When did you first hear about this? And when did you realize this is going to be a big deal? I first heard about it, I think, with the rest of the world around New Year's, uh, December 31st, 2019, when I thought I knew it was going to be a big deal when I saw what was happening in Italy and Iran. It just exponential growth, overwhelming hospital systems. And I knew it was coming for the United States next. And it sure did. And around March 2020, when it started exploding uh, in the States. I was one of the first cases in the U.S. in early March and got pretty sick. Yeah. Yeah. I rode in a car with my son from New York City to Birmingham. And in retrospect, there's probably not an easier way to pick up that virus than to sit in a car for 20 hours with somebody who's got the virus. So I learned that the hard way. But speaking of transmission, initially there was confusion about how the virus was transmitted. Uh, I, I remember vividly in that car ride, we were wiping down surfaces very assiduously, but it didn't seem to make any difference, obviously. So can you just talk briefly about how that emergence of understanding of how the virus was transmitted and why we focused on surfaces so early. 
Yeah, I mean, viruses, obviously, they can transmit in many different modes. For example, noroviruses, uh, cleaning surfaces is really important. With SARS-CoV-2, this is a novel virus. We were literally trying to understand how this virus transmitted, what was the incubation period, what was asymptomatic. I mean, we knew nothing um, in the beginning. And I think one way people feel empowered and they knew what to do was to start cleaning surfaces. And I remember that too. I, I think though that as time went on, particularly there was a very early study in China that showed this was uh, transmitting in the air, um, which means that it was these tiny little invisible aerosols infected people um, if they were and could be transmitted if they were breathing, talking, sneezing, laughing. There, we also knew there was these droplets, and they are bigger but heavier, so they drop to the ground within six feet, and so that's kind of where that six feet distance came. We didn't really know what was the main form of transmission really until around May of 2020, when about 200 scientists across the globe wrote a letter to the WHO asking to declare this as a aerosoled, air-transmitted virus. Unfortunately, WHO, as well as the CDC, didn't really come forward until about a year later, uh, which I think lost um, a lot of momentum and a lot of time to educate people on how to protect themselves around airborne viruses. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but if I recall correctly, SARS-CoV-1, the original SARS virus in 2002-2003, and the MERS virus, a related coronavirus, were predominantly transmitted person to person by touch and that type of thing, and weren't as transmitted via aerosols, if I remember correctly. Not to this extent, right? I mean, if we think about it, there's the more the only really more contagious virus is measles. I mean, COVID-19 found a really great way to transmit around humans. Um, and that made it one very difficult for us to just stop, right? So SARS was unique because all of a sudden it just stopped transmitting because of our public health and mitigation measures. But with COVID-19, it was becoming more and more clear over time that COVID was going to be with us. Um, and it was almost impossible to eliminate it uh, from humans after the initial boom of spread. So this hit right in your wheelhouse of what you've been working on for years. And you embraced this and became uh, very active in your newsletter and lots of people checking out what was new there. How did that go for you? How did you keep up with it? Was it I'm sure it's been like a treadmill and you're probably <laughs> exhausted by now, but what, what exactly did you do and what did you, you feel your role was? Yeah, so I kind of um, went on, uh, had two different hats, I would say. Um, you know, this was an all hands on deck response. So even if, so actually I was, I'm not a, I was not an expert in coronaviruses um, at the time, but we're all trained in epidemiology 101 if you're an epidemiologist. And so all of us had to become experts really quick and we're pulled in multiple different directions. Um, I helped on in the field. I helped with the Texas response um, in the governor's office in certain cities and counties in Texas. At the same time, 
Uh, I was also asked by my dean to give uh, daily updates to, f- to faculty, staff, and students. And um, these daily updates were just emails. It was me in Excel um, working with data. I used to work at the WHO in Geneva, so I had uh, good inlets to the data from there and just trying to explain in layman's terms and plain English what was going on. And this kind of uh, that hat of that scientific communication grew and grew over time because there was such a big gap um, in it. And uh, it's kind of what has brought me to where I am today. (laughs) So we have already talked about how uh, the notion of understanding how the virus was transmitted had to evolve over a couple of months. Meanwhile, April of 2020, huge burden of infection in major metropolitan areas. I mean, we can all recreate in our mind the images of hospitals in New York uh, filled with patients, uh, uh, ERs overwhelmed, uh, morgues uh, being built outside the hospital because they couldn't manage this. And not exactly a panic in the public health realm, but a lot of concern that if we didn't do something quickly, uh, a lot of health systems would be overwhelmed. And so that led to the notion of stay at home and hunker down and that type of thing. And those types of messages were difficult, and they still are. Um, How did you manage that in advising your dean and your health system and also the state of Texas as that was going on? Yeah, I will um, say I I think I disagree a little. I I think we were panicking a lot. Um, And it was more of a, maybe a panic is is more of a scramble um, because of a a lot of reasons. But mostly, especially if you look at a state level, even a national level, we have a very fragmented um, public health system, fragmented, underfunded, decentralized public health system. And so this means with a massive emergency that COVID-19 turned into, we were unable to share data with each other. We are unable to communicate with each other very quickly. Um, we had to build new partnerships, um, not just with politicians, but also with private sector. Um, and it was uh, incredibly overwhelming. You didn't really know where to start first. Um, at the same time, everyone was coming to you asking what to do. And so I don't know, I think what we, um, my biggest focus in Texas, as well as my scientific communication is how can we help filter our knowledge? What do we know? What do we not know? And what can people do today to feel empowered to protect themselves and their family based on the best knowledge we have? Unfortunately, that approach was either missing or people were just working 200 hours a week and just didn't have the time and capacity to do it either on a a systematic level. Right. So initially, the public was just as panicked in a way as the rest of us in the public health field were, and they abided by rules and recommendations. And then came the end of May, and it feels like Memorial Day weekend, there was a big switch in terms of some of the public staying with public health advice and others rebelling and rejecting. And that seemed to me to be the beginning of this horrible trend of uh, anti-science, and what I call the assassination of the trusted voice. Anyone who was saying things 
that were in the mainstream of public health recommendations were getting attacked. And I know you were on the front line of that. I was as well, many of us. And um, I'm not used to that. Again, I go back to that model of a public health official is a physician or an advisor to the population rather than an individual. But as a physician, I hardly ever get attacked by a patient when I give them my thoughts or advice. And yet that was happening in the public health sphere. What do you think is the genesis of that? Where do you think that comes from, this attack of the trusted voice, which started in probably late May of 2020? Yeah, I have been thinking about this a lot because you're right, just like you, I've been at the forefront of doxing, of death threats, of people showing up at my work, of really of being hacked, of really everything. And I think it's... Um, there, I mean, any multifaceted issue uh, has is complex, but I think that there's three main buckets what really drove this over time, like you said. Like it started really soft and then it got grewer and grewer um, and it just honestly became o- overwhelming at a certain time. One is... Um, People are scared. People are scared, confused, they're anxious, they're overwhelmed with information, particularly in this beginning of this pandemic. And I and I truly think that this is what turned into hate and anger. Um, second is, I think, especially now uh, in this phase or even the last year, is that people want someone to blame for the traumatic experience. I think that um, we... We as Americans, maybe even as a population as a whole, have not processed that we went through an incredibly traumatic time, whether that's losing a million people, whether that's losing a lot of jobs, whether that is the uncertainty, whether that's going crazy because our kids were out of school, whatever it was, it was a really traumatic time. So I think that's turned into a lot of hate. Um, Three, unfortunately, this has just become very politicized. Uh, for example, masks have become a symbol of what tribe you're a part of. And that is incredibly dangerous. Um, and that is and was fueled by politicians. Um, and it still is uh, to this day with COVID vaccines just last week, uh, Florida Surgeon General coming out. And so I think we can't ignore the politics of it. And then fourth is uh, we cannot also ignore that there are just bad players um, that are making a ton of money on disinformation. Um, and uh, if we do not find ways to discredit them as well as um uh, make sure that there's consequences, particularly around physicians, this is always going to be sort of a losing battle. Um, so I think really those four things, but I'm sure I've missed something, but I've been thinking about it a lot. No, that's, that's a wonderful uh, insight. And, and you really dug in a lot to what I was wondering about the motivation. So we can't think fear is a natural response that people are going to have, but we deal with that all the time in medicine you know, on a one-on-one basis, and we can manage that usually. Uh, the notion of disruption, uh, this was incredibly disruptive. I could argue that if somebody gets a new diagnosis of cancer or some uh, pretty substantial rheumatologic disease, that's disruptive in their life, but that individual can deal with it. seems like when it hits a population, uh, that type of disruption is is an order of magnitude or more 
in terms of its impact because it's not just an individual and you don't have an individual trusted physician or provider that you can go to. Your your public health official is the closest you can get. And a lot of times people didn't choose that public health official. And also uh, that that particular person is responsible for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, so it's not a personal relationship. And that may be where it came from as well. I'd like to dig in a little I'm bit more. I'm just going to add real quick to that because I agree with you. And I think that this is one way I know we're going to get to how do we fix it in the future. But the the pandemic was one of the first times people even knew they had a public health official. They've never seen their name. They've never seen their face before. Um, and I think because historically public health is proud that when it works, it's invisible, but that we need to change that because particularly we want to build trust during peacetime. So when it is wartime against a virus, then um, people know who they can trust. They recognize their face and their voice. And I think that was a missed opportunity too. Yeah, but in the middle of the panic, as you referred, I mean, it's hard to be thinking about that. As we're just trying yeah. <laughs> to keep our head above water and and not have the health systems get overwhelmed. I, I want to dig a little bit into something you alluded to, and that is the the bad actors making money uh, on misinformation and and uh, undermining the effort. Can you describe a little bit about at least what you sense, if not have evidence for, in terms of where those sources of revenue are and what's the motivation behind it? Yeah, so a lot of people don't realize that uh, only four families control 70% of the anti-vax conversation on social media. Um, and so there are really are truly nodes. Um, the Children's Health Defense, for example, was responsible for one in four disinformation tweets about COVID-19 vaccines among kids. Um, and one that person who's in charge of children's health defense is now running for president. Um, and so there's, uh, there, there's certainly that's, that's, bad Robert, that's Robert Kennedy. Yeah. Junior. Yeah. Um, uh, the center for countering hate had a massive report about this. Um, and they call it the disinformation dozen, uh, which is responsible for a lot of this, uh, motivations. I mean, there's always, there's a lot of money behind it. Um, the, particularly with anti-vaccines, I think there's a market of about 1 billion out there around an of anti-vaccine um, through clicks from just getting people to websites, but also through natural supplements, through books, through speaking of engagements, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and it certainly pushes a lot of this. I think that it's important to recognize, though, that disinformation or the deliberate spread of information to cause harm is different than misinformation, um, which is sharing something that you think sounds good, but you don't know, but you still share it. And, and tackling those two things, um, are a bit different, uh, but everyone kind of puts them into one's one under one umbrella. Yeah, I was thinking of disinformation as you were describing it, and that four node is uh, four families. That's pretty powerful. Uh, that I wasn't aware of that. You know, back in November or so, JAMA had an article or two about the use of artificial intelligence uh, in generating 
an enormous amount of misinformation in a short period of time. I think they did an experiment or something that in about an hour, they could generate a thousand uh, messages that were wrong, that sounded plausible, and sometimes even had videos associated with it, all just from, uh, not from ChatGPT itself, but something like that. And our work is really cut out for us in the future, um, if and when uh, those types of platforms are engaged in this. So uh, w- what are your thoughts about that? <laughs> and after I give you some Prozac, you can tell us what we can do about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think about this a lot, particularly in the space of trust. Um, I think that it's, um, well, one, trust is declining in public health after this pandemic. Um, that's very clear in the data. I think that um, defining the truth, asking what is the truth is going to be incredibly difficult in the years coming forward with AI and even deep fakes. Um, And our capabilities to spread mis and disinformation are going to be growing stronger. Um, I think that if we let this continue, the ramifications to communities as well as society is just going to be dramatic. It's going to be far-reaching and it's going to be deadly. Um, And uh, AI will help light that fire. But I will say that I think that as what as much doom and gloom there is around AI, I also truly think that we can use AI for good as well. Um, for example, how can we create an army of good information to be sent out there? How can we learn what gets things viral? Um, how can we learn what emotions help um, with positive behaviors instead of negative behaviors? I don't think it's being um, developed or uh, implemented as quickly as the other side, if we want to call it. But I I do know that there's interest in this and it could help scientists and scientific communicators a whole lot if we figure out how to um, increase our capacity using AI. Yeah. And I knew our time was going to go fast. We have a few minutes left and I'd like to pivot us around to where you are going in a little bit more of a positive direction, because it's inevitable that another pandemic will hit us probably uh, maybe in the next decade, maybe sooner, who knows? And we've got to be prepared for that. And that means we have a lot to do in terms of repairing uh, whatever damage was done uh, through uh, the disinformation of COVID. Uh, And I think you've already touched on a few things. Um, so I'll get you started and you can pick it up. But you'd already mentioned that uh, the public health uh, infrastructure has been fragmented. Uh, communication ability uh, was limited, uh, could be improved. Uh, messaging could be more uniform and uh, grounded in science. Uh, and you also mentioned that building trust with previously invisible public health officials is vitally important. Um, in order to get messaging out. So with that recapitulation of what you've already said, what what would you say we need to do in concrete ways over the next year or so to rebuild that trust and create those relationships? Yeah, so I think that there's um, some things that we need to admit that's already happening and going in a good direction. One is data modernization. Um, public health departments are, um, we were li- we were literally, De- um, 
filling out forms on a PDF and faxing them in March of 2020 during the pandemic. Um, We cannot use those systems anymore. And so we're updating all of those across all of our health, um, our public health uh, departments, which I think is fantastic. Two is the other good thing that I hope to see continued momentum is these public-private partnerships that recognizing that when public health, when government um, partners with Google or whoever, it can really increase our capacity um, to do good in the world. Uh, They bring the innovation, they bring the quickness, um, and they bring the talent as well. With the one thing I'm not seeing that I've been incredibly frustrated over over the past year is this space of scientific communication or how do we fix um, uh, the mess that was the past four years. And uh, I think that there's a lot of things. We don't have the time to go into that. But my bottom line is that we need to reimagine public health for the 21st century. And so this means how do we systematically as well as sustainably equip trust and messengers in our community, pastors, educators, pediatricians, people not from the ivory tower that um, impact everyone's lives on a very, very real way on a daily basis. Um, how do we leverage innovation like AI, for example, Um, What do we need to do to stop disinformation? And then also, how do we support the infrastructure for volunteers, for example, that are doing a lot of scientific communication um, and a lot of the dirty work on social media? um, And how can we help support them during peacetime, but also during wartime as well? Um, And so... I've been working very closely with all of those things, and that's what really initiated me building this new um, organization called Health Trust Initiative to do those three things, is build an infrastructure, train the next generation, and leverage innovation um, to improve knowledge translation. So to be determined, maybe in a year I'll have to come back. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's a website that you can refer us to for your organization? What? How do we get in touch with that? It's actually being built, like, literally as we... It was the hour before this call, so it should be coming up soon, and I'll be shouting it from the rooftops once it's done. Um, but I'm really excited about it, and um, we'll, we'll see where it takes us. Well, I think just based on our conversation, it's desperately needed, and uh, I think everybody listening will throw... Uh, a lot of support your way. So we will make sure that uh, we get this posted next to the uh, podcast announcement. Um, but we have run out of time. And I would uh, just like to thank you for a, a very uh, fast moving and informative conversation about public health systems. Thank you very much for being with us today, Caitlin. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Going Antiviral. Catch up on earlier episodes wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the video versions of this episode and others on the IASUSA YouTube channel. You can find these links in the show notes or simply go to YouTube and search for IASUSA and there they are. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review Going Antiviral on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to serve as medical advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect 
the opinions of the ISUSA or its affiliates. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, you can send it to podcast at iasusa.org to be answered in a future episode.